Aloha. Thank you for joining me on the Ghost Lore of Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Uncle Jared. And tonight, we're not sitting in the sand, although we're still beachside. This episode takes place on the western coast of the Big Island of Hawaii. Get as comfortable as you can sitting on this a'a lava. In Hawaiian, a'a is the type of lava rock that is sharp and jagged. As kids, the mnemonic device we use to remember the definition of a'a were that sharp rocks make you say ah, ah, when you step on them. You learn something. So you know the drill. Pop open a green bottle. Is this getting old? If it's your thing, roll up that Kona Gold, that big, big island bud, the uh, Ohana Marijuana, me like it. cozy up to the fire, and let's get into this. George trekked south along the black, secluded Kealakekua coastline while keeping his eye on the waves that crashed against the cliffside. Centuries-old lava flowing to the ocean hardened, forming the rough landscape that stretched along the western coast of the Big Island. The white sandy beaches, often portrayed in postcards, were not as common on the Big Island as some of the other Hawaiian islands. Shout out Kauai. But locals didn't mind. With cliffs and underwater reef comes abundant sea life like fish, taco or octopus, and crustaceans like the Kona crab and spiny lobster, both delicious even if lacking the meaty claws of their cousins. Another Hawaiian pastime was opihi picking, which claims numerous lives every year. Dangerous. Opihi being the conical hat-shaped limpet that congregate where the white water of the waves crashed against rock. Often, to harvest opihi, it requires timing the incoming swells, waiting for the water to suck out then scurrying down slippery rocks into wave territory. If you don't slip and fall into the churning white water of death a few feet next to you, you only have seconds to pry the suction-cupped delicacies off the rocks. Gorilla Glue ain't got nothing on OPs. Oh God. Why risk your life for a shellfish? that on average are a little bigger than the diameter of a quarter. And the larger opihi, 
that can be bigger than a half dollar are becoming increasingly more difficult to find. Because they're ono, delicious, extremely popular with locals, and their astronomical price per pound reflects that. Unfortunately, over-harvesting has caused a rapid decline in their numbers. Just like anything good these days. Downer. Opihi can be eaten raw, right off the rocks, or are popular thrown on the grill with a little shoyu, soy sauce, and chili pepper water. Water with chili peppers. Duh. Nah, 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 joking. Get more ingredients than that. George wasn't out here for Opihi, however. He was fishing. Times were tough. He knew his single mother struggled to pay the bills. Any assistance was a relief off of her. So fishing, whether from land, boat, throw net, or underwater spear fishing, had always been a way for islanders to feed their families. One speared uhu parrotfish can feed an entire family with leftovers. Nah, not the way we eat. This was his go-to spot, casting along these shores ever since he was a young boy. Before the paved road, golf courses, and vacation rentals. George hopped from one rock to another, scanning the water for possible spots to cast his line to. He continued walking parallel the water, making sure to stay out of any wet spots on the ground. Tourists listen in. If the rocks were wet, the waves recently reached that area, so stay away unless you want to be swept away. And not romantically. Also, a big rule, Useful tip. something we're taught early on in our childhood, is never turn your back to the ocean. You can be playing in the surf on a sandy beach or chilling on the rocks on a calm day. Either way, never turn your back on the ocean. After several hours of casting and retrieving his line, George was still empty-handed. He had been hoping to bring home dinner, but it looked like it would be Simon Ramen again. Instead of retracing his steps back along the water to the gravel parking lot where he parked his Tacoma, George decided to take the most direct route possible. He cut inland a bit, several hundred yards away from the ocean. His fishing pole bounced on his shoulder as he walked, George daydreaming about creative ways he could stretch his noodles. Maybe I'll throw in some spam and a couple boiled eggs. Again. He thought to himself. His thoughts were interrupted by the rumbling punches in his stomach from hunger. George approached a section of the lava field that suddenly rose ten feet up in a near vertical climb. Long ago... 
two lava flows must have converged, and as they cooled, pushed up against each other, creating this natural barrier. Okay, Mr. Geology. The wall was roughly three feet wide and obstructed his direct path back to his truck. Walking around it would add 20 minutes, at least. Climbing up and over the barrier shouldn't be too difficult, especially since he was going home empty-handed. Polo, no fish. George took off his shirt and carefully wrapped it around the reel of his fishing pole. The padding would be extra protection for when he tossed it carefully over the rock barrier. He then began to climb. But after only two steps up, the band from his rubber slipper snagged on the sharp corner of a boulder, tearing it off his foot, snapping the strap altogether. Barely keeping his balance, George hopped back down to the ground level to retrieve the slipper that was now stuck in the crevice of the boulder. As he pulled the slipper, several rocks shifted, causing the section of the wall he was on to crumble slightly. What he thought was one solid section of rock had been several large pieces fit together seamlessly. Just on the other side of the wall, it was flat, just as it was on his side. One would think breaking through the wall would just lead to the other side, but what George discovered, the wall was concealing a natural hole that led further underground. Someone took painstaking care to conceal the entrance. Entrance to where? He didn't know. But George was now very intrigued. Who made this? And what was it hiding? He leaned closer to the new crevices that had opened up when the rocks and boulders shifted. He could feel air flowing out of the cracks as if being displaced from a large room. George pulled down some of the larger rocks, being careful not to crush his legs from the tumbling debris. The more he dug, the more airflow he could feel. Sticking his head in, George looked around. The tunnel immediately dropped down into the lava, but the darkness prevented any visibility past the length of his arm. George must have walked by this spot hundreds of times before, but always walked closer to the water and could have never imagined this was here, underground. For the next couple of minutes, George dug away at the lava rocks until there was a large enough opening for him to fit in the hole. George lowered himself into the entrance of the cave. 
The first thing he noticed was the temperature change. It was a little past noon, so the sun had all day to bake the earth. But in the cave below ground level, the temperature was cooler, if not chilly. I should have kept my shirt. He pulled the headlamp out of the fisherman's vest he wore that held his extra lures, hooks, and fishing line and checked to see if the batteries still worked. The light turned on without problem, its beam strong. He slipped the headband on and adjusted the angle of the spotlight. The tunnel that led from the entrance further down into the cave was only four and a half to five feet tall, so George had to crouch down awkwardly just to avoid hitting his head again. As he paused on his knees, rubbing the spot on his forehead he had just conked, the beam from his light reflected off of an object on the ground. Its white hue contrasted with the black sand and rock that partially buried it. He dusted the remaining sand that covered the five to six inch object. George immediately knew what it was. A fish hook. He picked it up in his hand and rubbed his thumb over the antique. It was definitely carved from bone. The hook was smooth, white, shaped like a pot-bellied letter J with a small barb on the pointed end. George was in awe of the find, being a fisherman himself. He knew ancient Hawaiians often carved their fish hooks out of dog and bird bones and even heard of turtle shells being used. But larger hooks, like the one in his hand, were usually carved from human bone. Without thinking, he tossed the hook into a pocket of his vest and shined the light towards the rear of the room. He shuffled further into the cave, his lower back beginning to cramp from the awkward position. After a couple of feet, the tunnel opened up, or should I say, the ceiling of the cave stayed the same, but the floor dropped a foot or two, allowing for more head space. That's confusing. The cave ceiling was about six feet high, just tall enough where George didn't need to bend over anymore, but still low enough where it was a bit claustrophobic. Distracted by the ceiling and its jagged, cheese-grater-like texture, George missed what was on the ground in front of him. He blurted as he stumbled over the object that was on the ground. He looked down, beam from his flashlight, following his eyesight. 
Startled, George fell backwards, realizing what he was looking at. A skull. A human skull. Freaked out and slightly panicked, he pushed himself backwards, glancing to the left and saw another skull. After a few seconds of fright, he composed himself and got back on his knees. Laying in front of him were the skeletons of two people. In the darkness, it looked as if these two had laid down to die willingly. There were no claw marks on the walls or any signs of an attempt to escape. The bodies just lay peacefully with their heads facing the entrance. He tiptoed around the bodies, careful not to step on any bones. When his eyes got a little more used to the darkness, he saw what these two gatekeepers were guarding. There was something large stretched along the length of the room. He could see the massive object was smooth and not the jagged rock that made up the wall of the cave. He reached his hand out, slowly moving closer until his fingers made contact with the end of the object. It was wood. A canoe. Holy shit, how did they get this in here? He said, perplexed. George looked in the hull of the wooden craft and saw it was filled with a bunch of artifacts. He saw a warrior helmet, spear tips, fish hooks, a le omano, a deadly weapon used in battle that was a wooden club with shark's teeth sticking out of the business end. George took enough Hawaiian history classes in school to know the historical significance of these ancient items. Hotels, museums, and even the airports had displays of antique weapons or tools of the Hawaiians. A lot of times, these displays were artist recreations since authentic items are rarely found intact. Although a bit dusty, these artifacts were in just as good condition as their recreations. Just as George was about to reach into the canoe, his light flickered off, plunging the room into total darkness. George's eyes widened to the point of bulging his pupils searching for any light it could find. Colors danced in front of him, stains in his vision from his headlamp. Wait, the batteries in this light were strong. How could they just die without dimming? Then he realized in the blackness he couldn't even see the light from the cave's entrance. 
a cold panic enveloped him. Which direction was he even facing? George reached his hand out, hoping to feel the canoe or anything that could reorient his position. Then, his fingers touched hair. Human hair. George's hand jolted back in repulsion. Terrified, he stumbled sideways, bumping into the canoe. He felt his hand along the length of the wood, then to the cave wall, back to the tunnel entrance, and finally to the afternoon sunlight. George climbed up and over the wall, grabbed the fishing pole that he tossed over, then jogged the rest of the way back to his truck, leaving the entrance open. So you went inside the lava tube? didn't disturb anything, did you? It's one cave. Yeah, I went inside. Only a little. I went accidentally trip over one of the skulls, but not hard. I just never see them. Jeez, George. And it's a lava tube. Eugene corrected George. Eugene was George's older cousin who worked at the University of Hawaii. Hilo campus as an anthropology professor's aide. George called him as soon as he got back to his truck and began the drive home, knowing he'd know what to do about the find. You sure there was an entire canoe inside? Eugene asked. Yup, had stuff inside too. One helmet, one shark tooth club, stuff like that. Oh, wowie. Eugene said, unable to contain his excitement. George, this could be the tomb of a chief or even a king. There was a reason for Eugene's excitement about the find. Hawaiians went through great lengths to hide the remains of their ancestors. The reason for the great care taken to ensure the location of Inali'i's bones remained a secret was the Hawaiians' belief that contained in a person's bones was their mana, or spiritual power. Mana was so important to the Hawaiians, they spent their entire lives obtaining this power. It was believed by stealing the bones of a deceased person, the thief would gain the dead person's mana. This would also cause great dishonor to the deceased and their family. Those two skeletons that were in the cave were most likely the bearers of this person's remains. Only they knew the secret location, and after concealment of the bones and possessions, like the canoe and weapons, these dedicated followers sealed themselves in the cave, dying with the secret. Because of this, many of the final burial locations for Hawaiian royalty remain unknown.
If it is an Ali'i's tomb, on a moonless night, they paddled to this spot to forever hide the remains of their master. Until you trashed it with your heavy-ass feet. Shut up! It was one accident. Damn, those guys were dedicated, George said. Oh, and I needed to tell you, when my light went off, I reached out and felt... Wait, wait, you're, you're cutting out. You can finish telling me in person. I'm leaving my place right now and coming straight there. So, like, two hours? If I pick you up and we head straight to the lava tube, we can make it before sundown. I'll call someone from Blanchett Museum. They usually send out people to help with excavation, I heard. Eugene suggested. Blanchett being the premier cultural museum with the largest archive of books, photographs, and historical artifacts in Hawaii. Okay, but dinner's on you. Hello? Hello? Dang it. As soon as Eugene got off the phone with George, he called the Blanchette Museum to report the find. Not knowing the number to their archaeological department, he called the public museum on Oahu in hopes they could transfer him. He was immediately transferred to the appropriate line, Please hold. and before it could ring, someone answered. Hello. I've been told you've stumbled upon an important find. Please detail your experience. The person on the other line instructed in a polite yet dryly monotone voice. Eugene relayed the information George gave him, withholding the fact he wasn't there himself. Having his name associated with such a find, especially if it was an important ali'i or royal, could be huge for his anthropology career. Although he didn't know the exact coordinates of the cave, he described the area best he could. The person thanked him Thank you for your time. and hung up the phone before Eugene could ask any questions. So who's good? Uh, hello? What a weird phone call. It only took an hour and a half to get from Hilo to Kona, driving a lot faster than he should have. But Eugene was excited. Anthropologists go their entire careers without finding a burial cave like this. He pulled up to the house George shared with his mom and siblings and texted that he was outside and to hurry. George jogged down the driveway and hopped in the car. Jeez, how fast were you driving? What's up? Hi, George. George went into the story he'd been waiting to tell Eugene since hanging up. Bruh, so my light went shut off for no reason. Had new batteries and all. The cave was pitch black. I couldn't even see the light from outside. Was weird. Like black black. Okay, okay, I get it. Was dark. Go on. Oh, sorry. So, was dark. I started for panic. I couldn't remember which direction I was facing or nothing. So I wouldn't reach out my hand for feel around. Then my fingers went touch something hairy. 
hair? Like fur? No, it was long hair, like human hair. I got so scared I bolted and ran straight into the canoe. Luckily too, because I would feel my way to the cave wall and then the tunnel and then back out. I never been so relieved to be out in the hot sun. Dumbass. Eugene commented. <laughs> You're fishing, yeah? Why you never just tie the fishing line to something and use it as a safety line? Oh yeah, uh, I wasn't thinking. It was like I was in one trance. Almost. That's called stoned, you pakalolo head. Touche. And you said you only kicked the skull. You didn't say you smashed into the canoe either. No, no, never break. I just wouldn't run into him. Promise. When they pulled up to the small gravel parking lot, They saw six all-black SUVs taking up most of the spots. Whoa, these not tourists, George said. They parked and hopped out, Eugene following George as he headed towards the cave. Almost immediately after leaving the lot, towards the lava field that separated the vehicles from the ocean, they were stopped by a large, no-necked Samoan man who was wearing khaki pants, a green aloha shirt, and dark aviator sunglasses. The floral print aloha shirt, popularized in the islands that often passes as formal wear. The outfit Definitely not fit for the beach. Wow. Hey, how's it? Beach is closed. You gotta go suntan somewhere else today. The man regulating access looked more security guard than scientist. Eugene asked the man if he was with Blanchette Museum and informed him they were the ones who had called. My background is in anthropology. Maybe I could offer some assistance in what we found? Eugene suggested, voice sounding an octave higher, obviously intimidated by the large man. After a hushed conversation into his earpiece, the bouncer confirmed their association with Blanchette and let the two through, but instructed them not to touch or move anything and to identify themselves to anyone they see. George and Eugene glanced at each other in amazement. This entire team had beat them to the site from a different island. As they headed to the cave, they saw, scattered across the lava field, were about two dozen people. They were all dressed similar to the first guy, all sticking out like a sore thumb against the backdrop of the lava rock that surrounded them. All of the two dozen people were busy searching the ground for what Eugene assumed were for artifacts. George saw there was now a large tent covering the area where the cave was located. A generator hummed directly outside of the tent, supplying electricity 
for the large spotlights that now illuminated the cave. As the two walked closer towards the tent, all two dozen people stopped scanning the ground, stood up straight, and turned to stare at George and Eugene. They watched the entire time, silently, as the two climbed over the rock barrier and over to the white tent. Then, all at the same time, returned to searching the ground for artifacts or additional hidden caves. The tent entrance was sealed closed, requiring a keycard to unlock the door. The entrance was being guarded by an actual guard, dressed in all black, with a military-style assault rifle slung into his shoulder as if waiting for the opportunity to blast. The guard must have been informed about the two because before they could identify themselves, he buzzed them in and stepped sideways, allowing the two access. The guard looked dismissively away and continued scanning the horizon for possible threats that wouldn't come to a secluded area like this. As soon as they walked in, they noticed not only was there electricity, but the interior of the tent was also being cooled to the same temperature as inside the cave. It's to keep any of the objects from deteriorating when they bring it out of the cave, Eugene informed George. A table was set up in the middle of the room with all the artifacts, and then some, laying on its own tray. Wowie, Eugene said under his breath. He looked at the helmet, made of a hollowed-out gourd. Long, brown feathers decorated the top in a mohawk-style look. These helmets are still popularized in Hawaii today, but usually as miniaturized versions hanging from Toyota Tacoma rearview mirrors. There are several intricate spearheads and the Le Omano. Are you turned on? The wooden weapon, about two feet long, was shaped partially like a club and partially like a paddle. Then, about 20 inch long serrated shark's teeth were fastened to the club with thin rope. This had definitely been used in battle. Folded gently in another tray was a feather cape. This excited Eugene more than anything. The Ahuula, an ankle-long red and yellow cape made from the feathers of thousands of indigenous birds, were only worn by the highest of chiefs. The colors, red and yellow, being reserved exclusively for royalty. Some say 
it took so many birds to make these elaborate capes that this is the reason for the extinction of some and critically low numbers of surviving species of birds only found in Hawaii. George, was this the hair that you thought you felt? No, was hair. 100% hair. H-A-R-E. Wait, dumbass. As they continued towards the hole, George saw a set of stairs had been temporarily assembled, making walking down into the cave easier. A string of LED lights were attached along the ceiling of the tunnel, along with electrical extension cords for the massive spotlights brought in to illuminate the inside of the cave. The two skeletons laying at the end of the tunnel were still there, but a protective border of string wrapped around stakes in the ground was set up. George could see most of the sand had been carefully brushed off and away from the bodies. In full light, the room was a lot smaller than George initially thought. Two museum workers dressed in all-white coveralls latex gloves and lab goggles temporarily stopped inspecting something at the far end of the room as Eugene and George skittered past the skeletons. Once the scientists saw the two clear the obstacle without issue, they went back to their work. Amazingly, George saw the canoe was gone, already packed up and probably helicoptered back to Oahu for study. It was crazy how fast the museum worked. The two boys approached the scientists, curious at what they were inspecting. They saw a tightly stacked pedestal of white rock and coral about four feet tall and a foot in diameter, had been constructed. Propped on the column was a kappa bundle, roughly the size of a standard pillow. The two scientists were taking samples of kappa, the hand-pounded material made of fibrous bark. Most likely to carbon date it, to find the age of the material. Eugene whispered to George. So we have a fellow archaeologist, one of the two museum workers asked condescendingly. Not really. I teach over at UH in the anthropology department, Eugene answered proudly. You supervise the study hall. The scientists ignoring the two, obviously not looking for an answer. The bundle they were inspecting had shimmering, pearly eyes sewn onto it, made of -of mother-of-pearl shells. The large mouth was made of yellowing teeth. The teeth, however, were all flipped upside down, so the long, extended root of the teeth that resided deep 
in the gums created the effect of sharp, jagged teeth. So, there's bones inside that thing? George asked Eugene. Excuse me, do you guys mind keeping it down over there? A female voice, the other scientist said. No one said these were bones or a burial site. The only reason we okayed your access was because you found this cave. We want written statements on the events that led to finding this site. Plus you'll both have to sign confidentiality agreements before leaving, she instructed. What about the hair? Uh, my friend here thinks he touched something made of human hair while feeling around in the dark. I told him it's most likely the Ahuula feather cape, but he doesn't believe me. The two museum workers gave each other a quick glance, then went back to their work. Yes, there was an artifact made of hair. The female scientist replied, I told you! I should be a scientist! Ah! George shouted, jumping up in excitement and instantly hitting his head on the low ceiling. Dumbass. There was a skirt that was made of hair, the first ever found here in Hawaii. The female scientist explained, that's why you're signing those confidentiality agreements. This is big news, and the museum has to make sure it's not a hoax. The woman instructed the two to explain in detail how they happened upon the cave. George told his story, but left out accidentally stumbling over the skeletons. Once George finished his story, he and Eugene were quickly escorted out of the cave and back to the parking lot. They were handed over to the first guard they encountered, who gave them two iPads to type out their statements. Eugene confessed he wasn't there for the discovery, in which the guard snatched the iPad back. He glared at Eugene while swiping a few times on the tablet, then shoved it back without breaking his glare. Sign. The huge guard watched over, staring them in the eyes quite intimidatingly. Eugene nervously signed the confidentiality agreement and handed the tablet back to the guard. After George finished his statement and signed his own contract, the two rushed to Eugene's car and sped off, back to George's mom's house. Can you believe that? We're going to be famous! Eugene shouted. How are we going to be famous if we cannot talk about it? George asked. Oh yeah. Okay, shoots then. Eugene dropped George off at home and started the two-hour drive back to Hilo. The entire drive... He wondered what they'd say in the news tomorrow, believing this would be national, if not world, news. Just finding the only known skirt in Hawaii made of human hair would be big news enough 
but tie in the remains found that are very likely that of a royal was historic. The excitement of who the bones could belong to kept Eugene up all night. He spent hours online and in his textbooks researching burial methods of the Ali'i. George, however, had a very different night. After finishing a dinner of Simon Vienna sausage and two boiled eggs, again, he showered and went to bed. As he lay staring at the ceiling, the events of the day replayed in his head. Something felt off. For some reason, he had the lingering feeling like he'd forgotten something. Like the, did I leave the stove on feeling after leaving the house. That night, George dreamt of the battlefield. He witnessed hundreds of Hawaiians fighting hand-to-hand or with spears and clubs. He woke up in a sweat after Dream George was clobbered in the face by a large warrior with a club. George sat up, turned on the lamp by his bed, and began rubbing the area on his face that he had been hit. Then, like a lightning bolt, George jumped out of bed, remembering the source of what was keeping him up the night before. He ran to the closet and dumped out the contents of his hamper. Where is ah? Under the pile of clothes, he found the fisherman's vest he had on and searched the pockets. The hook. He pulled the carved relic from the front pocket, chicken skin rushing over his neck and back. Dang, I never mean for take him, he said, shivering. Just then, the floor behind him creaked. George turned around towards the direction of the sound. In the middle of the room, a few feet away from where he was crouched, were two indents in the carpet. George explained what he witnessed to Eugene over the phone as he drove back to the cave. It kind of looked like when you move a table after a long time and get those marks in the carpet. Let that. But was about a foot long and about the width. Uh, basically looked like feet, Eugene. Feet in my carpet. Like someone was standing there. Wouldn't freak me out. You sure there wasn't anything there before that you just forgot? No, for sure. Plus, why would I put something in the middle of my room? Gonna be in the way. Like almost everyone he knew, George believed in ghosts and the supernatural. He did not want to be haunted or cursed by an ancient Hawaiian warrior. Unintentionally taking something was still taking something. I gonna bring him back to the cave and tell the scientists I just went accidentally take him. Hopefully they're not gonna be mad. George pulled into the parking lot 
and was surprised to find it empty. It was just around 7.30 in the morning, so found it understandable that the museum team wouldn't be working around the clock. But still, no security? As he parked, got out, and headed to the cave, almost instantly, he saw the white tent was no longer set up. When he made it over the wall and to the entrance, it was left open and unoccupied. No guard? They packed everything up? Literally overnight. George climbed down into the hole. The temporary stairs that were set up yesterday, gone. He also saw the two skeletons were also gone. A flat, recently raked gravel and dirt floor in their place. The smooth floor feeling off in the now empty cave. The ceiling lights, artifacts, bundle containing the remains, even the white pillar had been packed up. George kneeled down and dug a small hole in the general area he found the fish hook and said a silent apology for everything. Accidentally stumbling on the skeletons, the fact the tomb was raided, and especially the two people gave their lives to keep the cave a secret, but the location would soon be shared with the world. George felt dirty, but not in the sense of hygiene, but that he had in some way contributed to the pillaging of this royal's resting spot. Especially if the information Eugene told him over the phone that morning was true. The information Eugene had learned while he had been up all night. George... I'm pretty sure it's Kamehameha's remains. King Kamehameha I was one of the greatest leaders in Hawaii's history. Standing at almost seven feet tall, added to the mythical figure. After his successful campaign to be the first king to unite the Hawaiian Islands, he lived out the final seven years of his life in Kailuakona, on the west coast of the Big Island. After his death, his bones would be highly sought after for its mana, so great care was taken to ensure the location was kept a secret. Legend is, Kamehameha's skin and flesh were stripped off of his body and thrown into the ocean, far from land. His bones were wrapped in a kappa basket, ordained with a large face, eyes made of mother of pearl, and a large mouth made 
from the teeth of Kamehameha himself. I stayed up all night researching. Bruh, Garen's Barbarians, that's Kamehameha's tomb. The face on the bundle with the teeth and all. Now, George, we can't jump to conclusions. After returning the fish hook, George sealed up the lava tube entrance best he could, deciding it had been disturbed enough. As he drove home, he couldn't help but feel torn. Discoveries like these were important in adding to Hawaii's cultural history. On the other hand, raiding the tomb, even under the guise of research, defeated the entire purpose of secrecy. The thought of his ancestors or anyone's remains being displayed in a museum was horrifying. When he got home, George did everything he could to avoid the news and the story guaranteed to be the headline. Eugene, however, was busy refreshing his phone every few minutes searching for the story. But it never came that day, or the day after, or the day after that. There was no story about the remains found, or the artifacts, or even the speculation that it could be Kamehameha's bones. Nothing. Until two months later, when a short, three-paragraph article was published in the local paper. It casually mentioned a couple of locals discovering a cave that contained a few artifacts like fish hooks, spears, a skirt made of hair, and tapestry. No mention of the remains, canoe, feather cape, or anything related to it being a tomb of an elite royal. Even the importance of the hair skirt was downplayed. Eugene couldn't believe it. What the heck? But George didn't see what the big deal was. Now no one would be combing that area or desecrating the tomb. A few weeks passed since the discovery on the beach and the short article detailing it, and George had practically all but forgotten the incident. Life had pretty much gone back to normal. His luck fishing did seem to change, however. Nowadays, George never came home empty-handed. His mom and siblings hadn't had a bowl of Simon for weeks. Dining on menpachi, papio, taco, and even an ahi that George had landed from shore. This morning, he was outside busy cleaning an uhu he had speared earlier that day when his mom shouted from inside, Eh, boy, you get mail. Okay, coming, he yelled back. Jesus, they're busy. No can wait or what? What? Oh, nothing. 
Thank you, mommy. George opened the envelope with his name handwritten on the front. No return address. And began reading the letter inside. Eugene was from the museum. Blanchette. They wouldn't send me the letter. George explained over the phone. I still can't believe nothing was mentioned in the news. Not even our names. Just that short article buried in the local paper. Hey, listen. So the letter wouldn't say mahalo for contacting them, yeah? About the cave. They appreciate it, blah, blah, blah. But then there was an extra thank you for your added discretion, it said. They wouldn't include one check. Like a cashier's check? Yeah, the ones from the bank. For how much? George, for how much? 10,000 bucks. What? Nothing else ended up becoming of the discovery. There were no news articles, no TV specials about possibly finding the burial of the most important king in Hawaii's history. The bundle and artifacts found in the cave weren't even put on display. At first, George wasn't sure how he felt about it all. Eugene couldn't understand how one of the greatest archaeological finds was downgraded to a few paragraphs in the local news. But as time passed, George understood. He felt the museum's decision not to announce anything else about the find sort of fell in line with the intent of the tomb in the first place. Once sealed, the cave was meant to be lost to time, never to be seen again. In the end, that's exactly what ended up happening. Damn, 10 G's. So, looks like dinner's on you, huh? George? Hey, hey George. Nah, I still here. No worry. I got you, cuz. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 8 of the Ghost Lore of Hawaii podcast. Although a lot of the story of this episode is fiction, the details about the burial rituals of Hawaiians were all based on truth. If the Blanchette Museum sounds familiar, it's based off of the famous Bishop Museum on Oahu, which does have the largest collection of Polynesian cultural artifacts. Although the story is mostly fiction, the whole premise of the episode is based on a very real incident and archaeological find. When in high school, my Hawaiian history teacher, the same one from episode 4 that experienced his car being pushed sideways by night marchers, told our class a story that happened at a local beachside in our town. A few locals climbed up a cliffside and discovered a cave. Inside, they found artifacts like spears, hooks, and a skirt made of hair. 
Nothing like this had ever been found in Hawaii, and the story always stuck with me. After years of searching, I finally found the news article written about that very cave. From 1903. Like my tale, the article was only three paragraphs long, buried in the local paper. If you want to check out the news article, you can go to my Instagram at ghostlore.of.hawaii and a link will be in the show notes. So thanks again for tuning in. I appreciate every single listener. If you have a story you'd like to hear on the podcast or just want to say hi, email me at ghostlore.of.hawaii at gmail.com. All episodes were written, voiced, and produced by me, Uncle Jared. Although my intent is to keep all historical information 100% accurate, I cannot guarantee it will be. If there's a topic you're interested in, please research it on your own. There's so much awesome information that I can't always include in one episode. In some instances, I may alter names and locations for privacy's sake. So you can you can see why <laughs> you can see why dad humor is such a big you can see why you can see why dad you can see why dad humor is such a big part of this show <laughs> I give up.